Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Right, can anyone tell me what movie we've just watched a bit of? Children of Men, very good. I don't know if you've seen it, it's a 2006 dystopian thriller and it seemed quite apt for Christmas, so I thought we'd start with that. Uh, Because what happens in in this movie, about 20 years after when it was made, uh, they've imagined this scenario where the world is bleak because no children can be born. And so they're tracking the human race and the youngest person in the world at the time of this film is 18 years old. And so what would happen to society when no kids can be born? And there's a breakdown of society. There's war, there's violence, there's lots of angst, there's lots of destruction. The government can't handle things anymore. And then in this film, a baby is born into a bleak world. And we've just seen what happened when that baby was born. And you've got all the soldiers, you've got all the violence, you've got all the people shooting. And then they catch glimpse of this lady holding a baby. And did you see the reverence on the faces of the people she was interacting with? Did you see the soldiers at the end, down on their knees, sign of the cross? So, whoa, there's something here. Because in all the desperation, in all the darkness, and in all the bleakness, there's now a baby being born that changes everything. See what I mean? It's a Christmas film, Children of Men. (laughs) People who say Die Hard's a Christmas film, I'm not having it. Children of Men, Children of Men is a modern day nativity, I'm telling you. And that is the story that, um, that we tell at Christmas. It's a similar story. It's a dark, bleak world into which a baby is born. And this gift of a baby gives hope. This gift of the baby gives transformation. And it reminded me of one of the classic Christmas passages in the Bible. Now, you've heard this before if you've been around carol services. If you've received Christmas cards, you might have seen this written on. And it's a prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to show you some of the verses in Isaiah 9 that I want to talk to you about this morning. So, Isaiah 9, verse 2, and then I'll read verses 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I've heard these so many times and I never quite thought 
this like explicitly, but I'd always just had this thing of, well, that's the Christmas verse, isn't it? Like basically what happened is the prophet Isaiah was sitting there, maybe kind of having his um, kind of Christmas drink, like eggnog latte or whatever he was doing, um, a bit of Mariah Carey in the background. He's thinking, I need some words that people in the future can quote at carol services, put on all their Christmas cards. We need to manufacture something. Yeah, towards a child is born, towards a son is given. You know, it wasn't like that, though. And so what I want to do this morning, just a little bit, is show you what these words are, show you where they came from, why these words were spoken, and hopefully we'll learn something a bit about the hope that we have. And you might have noticed that verse 2 started with the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. I wonder who he was talking about when he said that. Who were these people who were living in darkness? Well, let me tell you about it. Isaiah was a book that was written in 733 BC. And the context is uh, Israel and Judah, there's been a civil war and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And they're under threat. So the Assyrians were the big superpower of the day. They'd made an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were bullying. They were threatening. They were having a go at the southern kingdom. So eventually the southern kingdom paid them some money to go away. Now, I don't know if you know this, but paying someone money to go away isn't usually a good idea because what are they going to do? They're going to come back and say, right, you got any more money? And it's going to be a perpetuating thing. But that's what they did. And now everyone living in that nation is feeling pretty insecure. They're worrying that war might come to their land. They're worrying that poverty might come to their land. They're scared. And underneath all of it is a big question about God. Because when things are going bad and you're stressed and you're worried, isn't it natural to ask this question? Is God still with us? Does God even notice any of this? Does God still care? Do God's promises still stand? Is God for us? Is he against us? Or is he just not interested at all? Maybe you know that feeling. Perhaps 2022 has been a rotten year for you. Perhaps when you look back on everything that's happened to you, now you're feeling like everything's just crashing down on you. Maybe you've had challenges with your health this year, or maybe loved ones have been struggling with health. Maybe your finances are a mess and you're seeing your bills mount, you're seeing your income's not going up with them, and you're worried, you don't know how you're going to cope, you don't know how you'll make ends meet. Or maybe your relationships have broken down and people who you were close with, now you're, you're separated from, you're a long way apart, and you ask this question, is God still with me? Do you know what it's like to ask that question? So I'm going to do something really unusual for a Christmas service. I'm going to read from not just Isaiah 9, that's the classic. We're going to get into a bit of Isaiah 8 today, but you've never heard that before at a Christmas one, but we are. And in the context of this looming invasion, this worry about is God still with us, this is what Isaiah says. I'll start from verse 11 and just read some verses to give you a flavour. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. 
You see, they had conspiracy theories too. It was a load of rubbish then. It's a load of rubbish now. It's not helpful. It's not clever. Verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He's saying instead of wasting your time and energy, delving to the bottom half of the internet, dredging up nonsense theories, spend your time learning to honour God. Learn what it is to fear him. Build a relationship with God. And verse 14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. What he's saying is when hard times come, when pressure comes your way, when life gets difficult, there's two different responses you can have to God. You can make him a sanctuary. So that's a place that you would go and you feel safe and you feel secure and you know everything's okay because you've got God. Or you make him a rock of stumbling where you basically say, now, if this is happening to me, if my life's gone this way, now I'm out of here. I can't hack this. God must not love me. You can respond in either direction. And what the hard times do is they either push you closer to God or further away from him. Elizabeth Elliot said to the unbeliever, the fact of suffering only convinces him that God is not to be trusted and does not love us. But to the believer, the opposite is true. And this Christmas story is about what are we going to do? Are we going to draw close to God, even when stuff doesn't seem to be going the way we'd want? And we see these characters in the story. If you read uh, the gospel accounts and you see Simeon and Anna, these people have been through tragedy. These people have been through difficult lives. And where are they? They're in the temple waiting for the Lord. That's the call at Christmas. And then get a little warning against looking anywhere other than God. It says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn They'll pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. I mean, we know what it's like to hear people speak contemptuously against kings and rulers, to speak contemptuously against God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a bleak time. Why am I reading this? Why am I looking at Isaiah 8? Can't I just say something more cheerful to us? By the way, pork pie for anyone who had that on your bingo card. <laughs> and then he carries on into chapter 9. It says this, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is the Christmas hope. When everything's dark and desperate and bleak and dystopian. Here's a promise now, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, it's now, he's made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Why am I laboring this point? Well, it sets some context. I think with Christmas, one of the big problems that we have in church is we romanticize everything. We make everything seem really clear, clean cut, make everything seem like it's just polished and it's disconnected from how life actually is. It's not. It comes in the context of darkness, trouble and strife. And Fleming Rutledge talks about this season that we're in, Advent, and she says Advent is a time for making a fearless inventory of the darkness. I love that phrase. I love it. Because specifically Christmas isn't just hope generically, it's hope in a hard place. And that's the message today. Hope for hard times, hope for hard places, hope for hard seasons of your life. The great light is shining on those who walked in great darkness. So if you're here and you, you know you're at your lowest ebb in life, this hope's for you. I remember the hardest season of my life, 2001, 2002. That's when God broke into my life. A lot of you can testify the same things. You've walked through difficult seasons and then you've seen God's hope shine into that place. If you're feeling you're in a difficult season today, I've got good news for you. God's hope is given to you. And that bit in verse 1 about uh, Zebulun and Naphtali might just wash over us a bit. Basically, that was the northernmost bit, and that's the bit where the invasion was most likely to come first. That's the place they'd be most scared, the place they'd be most worried. But then hundreds of years later, that place had a different name, Galilee. And what happened in Galilee? Well, that's where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. Where did he minister first? Galilee. Matthew chapter 4 specifically tells us Jesus coming into Galilee was a fulfillment of all this. You see, the light shines brightest in the place that the darkness and fear and gloom was greatest. It's in the very place of despair where our hope comes. I mean, quoted Elizabeth Elliot earlier. Maybe you know the story of Elizabeth and her husband Jim. So Jim was a missionary to the Orca tribe and uh, he was murdered by them. And then what happened in this place of despair and darkness? Elizabeth then moved to live with these same people who'd murdered her husband and saw many of them reach with the gospel. Maybe you've heard the story of Shane Taylor. Now, Shane Taylor was once described as the most dangerous prisoner in the UK. So he was in prison here and then uh, he attacked a guard with glass. He was in solitary confinement 23 hours a day on his own. And then he went to an alpha course. And then he met God and his life was transformed. And do you know what he does now? Prisons ministry. He goes into prisons telling these people that there's hope. And the first prison that he went into is the prison that he got locked up in solitary. The place where the despair was greatest, then the light starts to shine. There are so many stories. There are stories of people who've struggled with debt, who then become debt coaches, getting other people out of debt. People who've endured sickness and hardship, who then become a blessing to others who walk through those circumstances. You can even think of this place that we're in right now. So Gorton, when I first moved up to Manchester, like 10, 11 years ago, Gorton had a bit of a reputation. You know, people had all the league tables of um, wealth and education quality, and they're like, okay, Gorton's like top of a lot of lists of uh, neediness, of deprivation. There's all these things going on. 
And about the same time, maybe a year or two later, there kept being prophetic stuff spoken about Gorton. And we're in a meeting, a, a church staff meeting a couple of weeks ago, and Lizzie read some verses from Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, there's a vision of the temple, the meeting place with God. And from this temple, a river starts to flow, and it's a river of life, and it brings life to everything it goes from, hang on a second, that sounds a bit familiar. We've had prophecies about that here at Gorton. Victoria, for years, has been prophesied about a building in Gorton, this one, by the way, from which rivers of living water would flow. I remember Lynn prophesying similar things here. We shouldn't forget these things. In the place where there can be darkness and despair and desperation, God brings hope. Isn't that good news? That's fantastic. And how does he do it? He does it in the most unexpected way. And that's what Isaiah 9 is telling us, our our Christmas passage. That's what it's saying. In this context, God brings hope in a very surprising package. A child is born, a son is given. You see, you can link in the children of men idea. A child was born. But for them, it made sense because the problem was there's no kids. Now there's a kid. But think about our world. Think about all the gloom and darkness and desperation. How does a baby help? It'd be like if I went to Ukraine and I go into the centre of Kiev and I see everything that's gone on there. There's no power. There's no running water. The missiles are flying. Their country's under threat. If I was to say, it's fine, I've got a baby here. They'd look at me like, what? How does that help anything? And yet somehow... In this child that was promised, this son that was given, as the hymn says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's in this baby somehow that there's the hope of the whole whole world. I absolutely love that. I love it. Isn't it just the way of the kingdom of God that he brings hope in a package that's small, overlooked and ignored? Because that's what a baby is. No one's going to be looking to a baby I hope it leads to the Galilee thing, overlooked, ignored, and small. But what it tells us is this. God isn't just there for all the big, fancy people out there. He's genuinely here for you and me in our little, insignificant corners of the world. That's the way of the kingdom of God. And then this baby, we're told the identity, and it's a game changer. We're given four titles of who he would be. Wonderful counsellor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first one is a wonderful counsellor. And you can literally translate this as a wonder of a counsellor. He's an absolute gem of a counsellor. He's fantastic. He's brilliant at it. And a counsellor is one who listens, one who gives advice, one who can dispense knowledge. I kind of imagine, you know those like, uh, you might see them as cartoons and you see this kind of old philosopher king on a mountain with a big long beard and everyone goes and queues and wants to get some advice for their life. That's the picture I get here. Jesus is the greatest teacher to have ever lived. And over the last few months, we've been hearing all about his teaching, the kingdom of heaven. There's more than just that he knows stuff and can teach us stuff. He actually gets us. He gets the things that you're going through in life. Have you suffered? He's suffered. He understands it. Have you been tempted? He's been tempted in every way. He's not unable to sympathize. So we can go to him with the actual stuff of life. 
About a week or so ago, I had to have a difficult conversation with someone. And when I went to the person and brought up what I wanted to bring up, they said to me, well, if you felt this way, why didn't you say something sooner? And I said, well, the problem with me is if I say things like as soon as I think them, I always say stupid stuff and I always regret it. and I always make a fool of myself. So what I really like to do is go to my wonderful counsellor and just mull on it and pray on it and make sure that what I bring actually is uh, right in the spirit. You see, we can go to him with the stuff that we think. He's also the mighty God. Another conversation I had recently, someone was talking about loving the teaching of Jesus, but they weren't sure about him being anything more than a teacher. Well, the problem here is if it was only ignorance, if it was only lack of knowledge that we had, then maybe a teacher would be fine. But the problem goes deeper. We're alienated from God and we need someone who can bridge that divide. So we need this child who's truly human to also be truly God, to bridge the gap between us and God. And that's that name we heard earlier, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate. And then because of his death on the cross, he reconciled us back to God. The third title we get is the Everlasting Father. Now, honestly, this was a bit of a weird one for me because I read Everlasting Father. I'm like, hang on a second, hang on. I, I, I've been to theology school. I, I, I know Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Isn't he the Son? What's it saying, Father? It's not trying to do weird stuff with the Trinity. He's just trying to say that Jesus is fatherly. And Spurgeon tells us five ways that it happens. So one, he's head of a tribe. So we used to be in team Adam. He's the head of a new team, team Jesus. He's a father in that way. Secondly, by example, he sets a, a new way of living. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. He's a father in that way. He's a life giver. That's at the heart of what being a father is, isn't it? You give life. He's the father of the future age, the new creation. And he shows us God's heart of being a father for his people, loving, tender care. And then finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. And that word peace, it's not just about stopping hostility. It's not just stopping fights. It's more than that. The word is shalom. It means making everything right. Again, Ukraine might be a really good thing to think about here because it's not just that they need the fighting to stop, although they do need that, but they need the whole nation to be rebuilt. They need good schools, good hospitals, good communities put back together again. Everything needs to be made right. And that's the promise of shalom. Melissa Campbell says the, the Hebrew word for peace, salom, or, or the Greek word irene, means a sense of totality or completeness, success, fulfillment, wholeness, harmony, security and well-being. It's God's perfect peace. His complete, lacking nothing type of wholeness and harmony. It's what we might experience when we say, it is well with my soul. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Christmas has this habit of taking away peace more than giving it. You get stressed, right? All the stuff you've got to do, all the relationships with different people that you've got to navigate. How about this Christmas, we lean into the Prince of Peace, who came to give us a new peace and a new shalom. 
And then the final thing about this kid is the government will be on his shoulders. Now, I think we understand a bit about governments and earthly rulers. We know that they range anywhere between mildly incompetent and uh, absolutely evil. That's the kind of range that we usually deal with. And even those who seem decent end up not living up to the hype, right? This is how it goes. In fact, I've got a nine-year-old son, and the other day he, he asked us, How's Sunak doing? Uh, which is quite a question for a nine-year-old to ask. But I think he's just so used to the reports of one prime minister after another who are not doing very well at all that it's a natural question to ask. Well, isn't it good that we've got someone sitting on the throne that when we say, how is he doing? We can ask, oh my goodness, he's doing fantastically well. He's ruling perfectly. He's got it in hand. He knows what he's doing. What type of rule does he have? Justice, righteousness, and peace. If the last years have been the story of a spotlight being shined on misuse of power, isn't it good to have someone sitting on the throne who knows how to use power well? Trillia Nubel tweeted this, I've been thinking about men in power, their responsibility, their ability to protect and look to the interests of others and the abuse of power we so often see and experience. And then I think of Jesus, who had all the power. Yeah, read Philippians 2. Thankful for Jesus. You see, we have a king, not who will abuse power, but who will wash the feet of those who serve him. We have a king who will regard the lowly, who will speak with gentleness, who will draw in the outsider. And we also, we're told, have a king forever. Maybe you've read the Old Testament when it talks about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it's like bad king, bad king, bad king. But every once in a while, you get a good one. And you think, okay, things are taking an upturn now. And then they die and you get another bad one. That's the way it normally goes. He will be on the throne reigning perfectly forever. And his rule, it says, will continue to increase. There'll be no end to the increase of his rule. Back to that principle of the kingdom. It starts small like a mustard seed, but it grows and it grows and it grows. Did you know that in the year 1900, there were fewer than one million people around the world who would identify as charismatic or Pentecostal Christians? But by 2050, it's estimated to top one billion people. That's according to the 2022 Status of Global Christianity report. You see, the media might be making a big deal over who's ticked what box on a census. But at the same time, Jesus is continuing to win hearts, transform lives and bring hope to the world. He's a great king. Christmas is about hope. And these scriptures that we've been looking at show it. But what I love about them is they don't pretend we have to have everything sorted first. They don't pretend we need to be in an okay situation. It reminds me of a song by Rihanna and Calvin Harris about finding love in a hopeless place. Well, I don't know as you walked in this morning where your hope gauge was. Maybe it was up here through the roof. You've got all the hope you need. Or maybe it was down here. You're feeling desperate, you're feeling low, and you're feeling bleak. But what I do believe is this morning... This Prince of Peace wants to meet with you wherever you're at. I believe he wants to fill you with new hope. I believe he wants to give you a gift of Christmas where you can raise your eyes to something bigger than circumstances because God's doing something in the world.